IEEE Essay Voice shares insights and perspectives from the IEEE Essay community, subject matter experts, and industry leaders that are working to raise the world's standards, drive market solutions, and much more, keeping you at the forefront of technological innovation for the benefit of humanity. Hello, everyone. And welcome to the IEEE Essays Rethink Health podcast series. I'm your host, Maria Palombini, Director of the Healthcare and Life Sciences Global Practice here at the IEEE Standards Association. This podcast series puts industry stakeholders from around the globe on the spot to answer an important question. How can we rethink the approach to healthcare with the responsible use of new technologies and applications that can afford more security, protection, and sustainable, equitable access to quality care for all individuals? We are delighted to bring you season five, the rise in demand for telehealth equity and accessible technologies, which we are presenting in collaboration with the American Telemedicine Association, ATA. The ATA is a nonprofit organization completely focused on advancing telehealth, committed to ensuring that everyone has access to safe, affordable, and appropriate care when and where they need it, enabling the system to do more good for more people. And we all like that. You can learn more about the IEEE Rethink Health podcast series and tune into previous seasons on ieeesa.io backslash health podcast or just scroll through the Rethink Health podcast channel on your player. We are hearing more and more that the global aging population is rapidly growing. According to the WHO, the World Health Organization, it is estimated that by the year of 2050, people 65 and older globally will reach 1.5 billion. Here's another wow fact. In 2018, for the first time in history, persons aged 65 and over outnumbered children under five years of age globally. These numbers have significant implications. Who or what will be able to fill the gap in a way that provides quality support for their needs with dignity, privacy, and security? One thing for sure is that the aging are the most diverse geographic, demographic, socioeconomic group to serve, and in no way one aging adult represents all. And one of the more significant challenges with the aging is developing a range of remote or connected assistive technologies that can be equally accessible and feasible for all. It's not just a lack of infrastructure as the challenge, but again, we will see the issue of distrust rise again. In season five, we are bringing the technologists, the researchers, the clinicians, advocates, and a host of other stakeholders who will discuss the rise in demand and need for telehealth, along with the growing concerns of addressing the challenges prohibiting equitable access especially for the most vulnerable. Since this is a special season, as a collaboration with the ATA, our guests will be a selection of speakers from the 2023 annual conference, which is taking place on the 4th to the 6th of March in San Antonio, Texas. The IEEESA will host a unique panel session entitled Aging at Home, Bringing Feasible and Accessible Assistive and Digital Technologies. And with me today, I'm delighted that we have one of our panelists, Dr. Elizabeth White-Baker, here with me as a special guest. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm super excited about this interview. So before we begin, just a short disclaimer, IEEE nor ATA endorse or financially support any of the products or services mentioned by or affiliated with our guest experts in this season five episodes. Guests are invited to participate to offer their opinions and perspectives represented from their own knowledge and experience. So we're going to go right into segment one, which humanizes the experience Elizabeth, we'd like to just share a little bit about ourselves with our audience before we get to the core of what we're really here to talk about. So you have a highly esteemed educational background at MIT and VCU, 
and you're adept at understanding how information systems can work and not work. I mean, I look to you for always great answers because you always have them. <laughs> you are an advocate for driving inclusion in the technology engineering field. And, you know, inclusion means different things to different people. So my question to you is, what does it mean to you? What are you trying to inspire or call attention when teaching these future engineering stars when it comes to inclusion? Why is this critical in the healthcare domain? Well, for me, when I'm training engineers and when I'm talking even with healthcare practitioners who have to use the technology, what is important is inclusion includes everyone, differing types of engineers, differing types of patients to get different and better perspectives on the technology that we bring to healthcare. So really humanizing what the tools that we want to use are. And I have to remind people, particularly my engineers, that technology has to work with the healing process and not against it. And what do I mean by that? I mean, when we design technology, often we do it in a bubble that is different from what is on your lab bench or on your computer when you're designing a device. And we have to remember that that device is going to be on a patient or near someone who's not well. And so we want to make sure that everything that we design is with it, um, is with that patient and the caregiver in mind. It can't be complicated for the caregiver and it can't be complicated or um, uneasy for the patient. Otherwise, the technology that you introduce makes them less well, which is exactly what you don't want. Um, and that's why it's critical in the healthcare domain. We need to ensure that we're making the tools to help humans care for other humans as opposed to displacing humans or um, thinking that we are um, diagnosing uh, robots. You know, it's, it's people who aren't well. So uh, a quick story here. Um, you might have an elder that you're taking care of at home. And, um, you know, you may need your eyeglasses to be able to see the instructions of how to put this device on or how to make it work. And understanding that the caregiver might not be a 20-year-old who can read, you know, eight-point font is important, or that they may not understand the abbreviations that you're using. And these are very simple design and engineering decisions that can be made that can make all the difference for the efficacy of the tool. So that's what I think about inclusion, that everybody is not like you. And that in healthcare in particular, we've got to have engineers that are differing. And we have to understand that the patients that we're serving are differing. Absolutely. So, you know, for our audience out there, you know, Elizabeth is a, an associate professor at um, Virginia Commonwealth University. And she's also the volunteer secretary of the IEEE's Transforming the Telehealth Paradigm Industry Connections Program. And I'll mention a little bit about that at the end of the interview. But her expertise is really critical because when we talk about inclusion, we know in telehealth in general, there's this big cloud of this idea of inclusion or lack of inclusion um, that we're all trying to address. So let's get to the core of what we're here to talk about. Um, you know, inclusion is a huge issue or lack of inclusion. And we hear it from every angle in the healthcare sector as it relates to, you know, algorithmic um, AI bias, algorithm bias, uh, or to lack of healthcare access. Um, you name it, telehealth inequity, we hear it all the time. Um, but when it comes to the aging population, inclusion is just as a critical issue, right? So when we look at the future of technology engineering, 
Where do you think the field needs to start addressing this idea for inclusion for such a diverse population of aging adults? And how can these principles um, be embedded into either the design and development so that they can fundamentally assist the diverse needs of this aging group? Well, you're absolutely right. It seems like an incredibly daunting process to try and take into account all of the diversity that you have to include. But with respect to boiling it down to the simplest um, principles, we really need technology engineering, people like me who teach this and who train others. We need to address both the humans and the technology working together to maximize patient outcomes. And this is different than what we look at normally because normally tech uses is just between a user and a computer. So the human-computer interaction is just two-dimensional. But in healthcare, you have the unique situation where typically you have three entities. You have the caregiver, and that can be the healthcare professional. It can be someone in the home. It can be both the patient and the technology. So you have this triad that you have to consider because the patient themselves is likely not going to be the only one. They're going to have this caregiver involved. And we don't look at that often enough. We don't look at the fact that there are three different entities involved and all of them need to be considered when we're designing new technology. And we have to account for all of them in the context that we're in, because ultimately we can design anything we want, but if it doesn't have utility, if, if it's not useful and nobody adopts it, you've just wasted your money in design. And, and we don't want to be engineers that design the things that only we like. We want to be engineers that design things that help people get better. And so I think that's where we really need to start looking is that um, context can be the same. Homes, hospitals, you know, where we get care can be generalized. And this idea that there are three entities involved can be generalized. And if you go from there, you can improve the tools dramatically. Absolutely important. Everybody forgets the caregiver when there is one, actually, because now the older generation is outpacing the younger generation. So I think there's going to be more of them and less of them to care take care of them, unfortunately. Absolutely. So this brings me to an interesting scenario. Um, you know, the other day uh, you had mentioned it uh, about, you know, Japan already uh, being uh, out there developing robotics to assist with the aging. You know, Japan is probably at the forefront of having a larger aging population and kind of starting to try to address this issue because they don't have enough younger generation to take care of these older generation. And then simultaneously, I ran into an article by um, the MIT Technology Review article that mentioned that the national government of Japan by 2018 alone had spent well in excess of $300 million funding research and development for these kinds of um, robotic devices to care for older people. And they actually had one called Robear. Um, which was developed in 2015. Um, but it's been since 2015. There's all this money behind it, yet it's not normalized in care facilities or private homes. So we have a problem. So the question is, is why is something like this not taking off? If this is to be the trailblazing model to follow, what do we need to rethink from a techno solution you know, when it comes to care, especially when we talk, this could be for emotional support care, health care, et cetera, for this aging population. Well, I think that the key issue 
that we can start with is that often maximizing profit and maximizing health outcomes kind of work at cross purposes. And that is not always very helpful. We need to maximize both of these and not sacrifice one at the cost of the other. And, and so that's the answer, in my opinion, as to why these are not taking off. Because what the current model that everyone's trying to follow looks to do is replace the human caregiver completely rather than augment the human caregiver. And what do I mean by that? Um, yes, there's a demographic challenge and there's no question. But if we can make the human caregivers more efficient and effective, we don't have to use the technology to replace them. We can use the technology to broaden their reach uh, and make them more effective for both cost and efficiency reasons. So what you have to understand is that a lot of technology makes things transactional, meaning I give you this, you give me that. And, and that reduces friction and makes things more efficient. In healthcare, you can't really do that quite so well because healthcare isn't transactional, it's relational. I am here to help you get better. I am here to have you trust me. It's not sort of a one-off kind of thing that you can do with just technology. So I think we need to, this trailblazing model is important and we're about 80% of the way there, but I think the 20% is working on how to make this technology more relational, meaning how do we trust and believe, get the patient to believe and the caregiver, I'll add, that this technology is actually working to, to make my healthcare better uh, in the most efficient way possible, in a way that I can trust. And, you know, it, it just behooves us in healthcare to think about both uh, patient outcomes and um, uh, profit maximization, but you, it can't be one or the other. And I think that's where we're really struggling. Absolutely. I think, you know, obviously we all know there's not going to be a robot in every single aging person's home or at every bedside in an assistive care facility. Um, I mean, maybe one day they'll be commoditized that way, but it is something to think about. I also don't think that you need that. And what I mean is, you know, even something that has less functionality than a robot, an Alexa, mm -hmm. can go a long way in um, helping, say, guide animals, which we already have help people's mobility around the house or to get um, to get things. And so it's just a design uh, concern as well. So I, I don't think we have to have everything all at once, everything everywhere all at once to quit the movie title. I, I think that we could roll it out such that we have great gains with maybe technology that uh, doesn't have to be quite so doing everything. Yep. Absolutely. Good point. Very good point. Today is another day to dream big and bring new designs and ideas to life to support the growing need for telehealth services and technologies across the world. However, as a tech entrepreneur, going from concept to product to market success is not an easy feat. Whether you are a first-time or experienced entrepreneur, Getting advice from mentors who have the knowledge and experience either in technology design, compliance, early seed funding, or breaking ground into the healthcare market can benefit you along the way. IEEE ESSIC is helping early stage tech entrepreneurs with access to these mentors while giving them a platform to have a voice 
in the challenges that continue to inhibit innovation and growth in the domain. If you are a tech entrepreneur and would like to join your peers in this global community, visit ieesa.io backslash telehealth startup. There is no cost to join. You will not only have the option to advance your objectives, but also you will contribute significantly to optimizing adoption of these technologies, which will benefit the telehealth system for all stakeholders. Visit ieesaio backslash telehealth startup to join this growing community. So a little earlier, we talked about inequity and lack of inclusion, obviously, in the healthcare system. And this is, of course, being carried over into telehealth. Um, you know, some people have argued, well, the, the issue is that these marginalized populations um, don't have access to adequate digital access infrastructure um, so they can get access to digital health and telehealth services. So would you agree or disagree that if we, the global tech community, and obviously you with a very Un- unbelievable understanding of technology engineering in this area can fix this issue of lack of digital access and that we would solve the problem. Here's your internet access and here we go. Or is this problem more, a little more complex and is it more a digital literacy and or health literacy problem? This is a really interesting question and I wish I had better news. Um, I don't think it's an access issue at all at this point, at least when you're talking about first world countries. Um, If you look at OECD information about technology adoption, particularly with respect to mobile phones, you have north of 95% adoption. And that's all you need to have access. So I think if we're looking to blame it on that, we can't anymore. I think the issue is more complex and it has to do with not at looking what tech can do in and of itself, but what it can do for the consumer. And, you know, do people know that they can use audio only phone calls for health? Do they know that a school, um, that a facilitator at a senior center can call to get services? Do the people at the senior center know that they can uh, reach out and facilitate help? It, it becomes very uh, complicated. And I think also, um, in addition to a literacy or a health problem, I'll talk about that in a second, um, it, it really has to do, it's more chaotic. It really has to do with market forces. And, you know, we had a lot of states that had tele-access laws on the books long before COVID. And it wasn't until it became profitable for them to offer telehealth services that they began to do so, even though the policy was there supporting them. And I just know this from my state of Virginia. So I think blaming it on access is convenient. Blaming it on the user not being educated is convenient. But really, it has to do with harnessing access, education, and policy, you know, the, the market forces all together to make um, the digital divide uh, shrink. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think there's a good point there about digital awareness. Uh, I don't know if I would call it digital literacy, but definitely the idea of digital awareness is really, really important, especially for the aging. Well, and community-based care. I mean, at this point, for instance, we saw a lot of the deployment of religious communities to help with COVID uh, vaccination. We saw um, a lot of social groups 
helping with healthcare. And I think particularly with the aging, that's going to become even more important as uh, we get upside, what I call upside down triangle with the aging being so many more than the, uh, than the younger generation in terms of numbers. Absolutely. So with the aging, uh, our favorite elderly, uh, and aging, by the way, for everybody out there can mean anything, anywhere. We could say from the age 50 and older, 55 and older, 65 and older, we don't have a standard there. No pun intended. Um, well, even, that's so funny because even the United States, when you look at um, DHHS, the Health and Human Safety, they have aged, very aged, very yeah. young aged. It's, it's amazing. It's like this amazing You're just aged. I don't know if you, anybody wants to be classified like that on their healthcare documents, but, you know, it is a reality for all of us. So we know what. This particular group, uh, you know, there's a major issue of trust because a lot of things are changing, right? Technology is changing, how healthcare delivery is changing. So it is human nature that the less we understand something, the less likely we are to trust it. I mean, this is, I think, in every aspect, every generational gap. But this brings me to one of your areas of expertise and uh, around cybersecurity, right? The aging population is a highly vulnerable one. Um, you know, not understanding like this whole digital landscape. Um, therefore, how do you see cybersecurity being a major element of the design in these innovations to a population of users who may not even understand what it means to be cyber vulnerable and how to protect their digital and personal data when utilizing these technologies? I mean, what responsibility do you think engineers may have in this role? And maybe perhaps where do you think if you know, policy has a role, like this is like another sort of complex area as well. Well, the good news is I think we've already solved this problem in one area of society and I think we can transfer it. And so we already have very robust cybersecurity with respect to electronic commerce. We put our financial information online routinely and it has uh, robust standards to secure it. And I think that the good, and a lot of people, this is not going to surprise anyone, use e-commerce without understanding how it works. <laughs> Just because of the people I teach, I ask questions and they have no idea uh, about uh, necessarily data transmission security or data storage security or anything like that. They just know that they can trust when they put their credit card in that it's not going to be stolen and they'll get the goods that they have ordered. With respect to the aging population and cybersecurity, I think from the engineers have all the responsibility, in my opinion, to make sure that the personally identifiable health information is protected. Now, fortunately, we have policies behind that. I think those policies most certainly need to be more sophisticated than they are, but they're a good basis. And so we can very easily secure health data transmission and we can fairly easily secure health data storage, even if we decide to store it uh, offsite in the cloud somewhere. We are starting to develop um, standards of, based on cybersecurity and compliance rules um, through the FDA. So what I tell my engineers is design it as if it were your parents' data at risk because it is, your parents' data is going to be at risk, right? Um, think about it. You know, think about what it is that you're trying to protect here. And in terms of policy, we need to get policies in place 
that force continued education because the risks are rapidly developing. Cybersecurity is um, endlessly defensive. If you're not on the offensive almost, you, you aren't well defending. And so we need to ensure that it's not a set it and forget it type of project, that cybersecurity with healthcare information is a program. That's something you keep working at and you keep looking at um, to protect your patients and their data. We can facilitate people trusting this so the aging population, they won't use what they don't understand. That's probably true. Um, well, it's definitely true, says the person who didn't even use streaming television services until my kids kind of explained it to me a little better. Um, <laughs> right? right. So I think that if we use humans to translate trust in technology, again, this is where the caregiver can really come into play um, in this particular situation that we can really rapidly move adoption along because then the caregiver can trust that the technology is safe and the it's definitely in the provider's best interest because they could be highly sanctioned. So um, all policy is important. Engineering is important. And then this idea of bringing the provider in, all three of those have to be addressed in terms of cybersecurity for it to be effective. Absolutely. All very, very important points. You mentioned uh, something interesting. Uh, I heard the term technical standard. So, which leads us to our next question. Um, you know, where do you see the role of technical standards development to truly address some of these issues with security and accessibility? You know, for our audience who may not all be engineers or in the standards development land, um, can you explain why the development of a technical standard can make these challenges you know, seamlessly resolved um, to the end user while still fostering innovation for the designer and the developer? Absolutely. I'm asked this question all the time, uh, particularly with respect to medical device design. And that is, you know, why standards make it harder to differentiate your product, right? And so we don't want to adhere to standards because if we did, then someone could copy what we're doing and then make our innovation worthless. And I, I couldn't disagree with that more. There's certain things that we don't need to compete on. And in fact, if you don't, you're going to lose your ability to have your device adopted because it's not interoperable with anything. So what I'm going to tell you is that competition is healthy, but if you don't have rules or standards, you're not even going to be able to play the game. And so the idea that standards are available actually create a basis upon which you can focus on innovating on the things that will give you economic advantage, sustainable competitive advantage, as opposed to trying to differentiate on things that are going to make you in a how do you say, uninteroperable, <laughs> not, not able to play well with others. And in healthcare, it's too expensive. We can't afford to have things that don't work with other things. Like it's just, it's, it's not going to work out. So um, I believe that if we are able to make the standards clear, that then we can have our innovators focus on things that truly make devices innovative and we can compete on that more effectively for better interoperability. And therefore, more interoperability means more people adopting your product in the long run. Absolutely. Um, I think that's really, really important. Uh, plug and play, plug and play, right? We want to make it easy. We want to make it, uh, we want the information that we need to help ourselves, right? As patients and um, and as, even as caregivers, right? Caregivers are managing patients' data all day long. Uh, so whatever we can make 
to help them help themselves is always uh, really, really critical in the, in the scope of better health care. You know, absolutely. Elizabeth, you shared so many insightful points today. Um, you know, any final thoughts you would like to share with our uh, diverse audience as it comes to any of the challenges, issues, you know, any kind of needs to gain wider adoption of remote assistive technologies? You know, what can we do as a technologist, a researcher, a clinician, a patient advocate, or any other stakeholder in the process, you know, to contribute to a trusted and ethical system of sort of, you know, care uh, for these uh, aging population? My final thoughts really tie back to what I said in the earlier in the podcast, which is that it's not strictly a technological problem. And we as engineers have to push beyond our comfort zone to ensure that we can embed trust in what we build, patient trust and caregiver and physician trust in what we build. And if we do that, if we push out beyond and we develop things that push the envelope and people are able to trust them, we'll revolutionize care. And a story about this um, comes from my own health experience. Um, when I was pregnant with my oldest daughter, I suffered from a severe pregnancy complication that caused me to be hospitalized for 35 days prior to her birth. I wasn't hospitalized for any other reason other than I needed to be monitored 24-7. Now, it was our first baby. It was my husband uh, had to try and keep the home running and be with me at the hospital, constantly worried. And I think that that me being in the hospital made me less well. It made me more afraid. It made me less comfortable with just understanding that this was something that we just had to get through. And I think about how if we had had the technologies for me to be monitored at home, it was basically two sensors and a belt that went into um, a computer device that, you know, I could have been monitored in my own bed. I could have been at home. I could have been much calmer. I'm, they always wanted my blood pressure to go down. I'm sure my blood pressure would have been down. My husband's and the other people caring for me would have been a lot less concerned. And when you talk about what we can do in terms of revolutionizing the environment of people getting better with remote assistive technologies. Uh, we just have to go for that vision. We have to, because it's not just going to be the technology. It's going to be every other piece of it. And so my vision is that your mom or your dad or your Tia or your Tia can be at home and, or be in an environment where they're comfortable and be monitored. And you can have people um, just like we monitor networks remotely, monitor patients remotely. And then if there's an emergency, someone can be called just like we do. And so I think that's the vision of the future that I'm hoping that we see. And so for all of us, let's just build more trust and push beyond what we're comfortable with to make sure that what we develop falls into that category. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that personal story. I think it, um, it resonates with many of us. Uh, everybody has some sort of personal sort of journey that inspires them. Um, but I think um, you've given us so many exciting points. And I, I think my favorite takeaway is design like you're designing for your mom and dad and your grandparents. And, uh, you know, sometimes that kind of just personalizes it, brings it down to home. So, um, you know, thank you, Elizabeth, for joining me today and also for being such a great volunteer and the great work you do on the IEEESA transforming the telehealth paradigm industry connections program. You are just a tremendous uh, insight to me anyway. So I really enjoy having you part of the group. It's a pleasure, Maria. Thank you so much. 
And for all of you out there, if you would like to learn more about the telehealth program, it's an open incubation program. And it's really all these volunteers from all walks of disciplines designed come together to look at solutions to major challenges impeding equitable, sustainable quality and secure access to the telehealth system. Um, you can learn more about it at ieesa.io backslash telehealth IC. And there's links from obviously the Healthcare Life Science Practice website. Um, as I mentioned earlier, this season five is presented with the ATA. Um, and if you want to learn more about their important education, uh, awareness and advocacy activities, their annual conferences, they do smaller conferences throughout the year, um, you can visit their website at www.americantelemed.org. You know, a lot of the conversation and concepts we talked about today and throughout the entire season five um, series is really uh, addressed in many different activities here at the IEEE Essays Healthcare and Life Science Practice whether it's in standards, incubation programs, conferences, podcasts, we, we try to cover it all. And really our mission of the practice is aligned with the, you know, the goal of this series is engaging multidisciplinary stakeholders and have them collaborate, build consensus and share ideas and bring awareness and develop solutions in an open standardized means to support innovation that will enable us to really get to this um, sustainable, equitable access care for all. If you wanna learn more about the great projects going on here in the practice, um, visit ieesa.io backslash HLS. And a special thanks to you, the audience, for joining us today. We invite you to share this podcast with your colleagues and networks to help to get this information out to who those who want to make a difference and contribute to the overall better health care for all. Um, we thank you for joining us and keep doing the great work you're doing to improve our health care system. Um, tune in to the other episodes of season five featuring the experts and some of the speakers from ATA 2023 annual conference. Until next time, stay safe and well. On behalf of IEEE Standards Association and IEEE SA Voice, thank you for joining us today. For more information, please visit standards.ieee.org. We hope you'll join us again soon.